0: Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational interactive show for nurse practitioners and physician assistants in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is Mike Sharma. I started my PA career in the U.S. Army, including a deployment to Afghanistan. Now I practice emergency and urgent care medicine in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for tuning in. We've got some really important stuff to talk about today in terms of keeping yourself safe from infectious disease, as well as best practices for common problems in the ED and urgent care clinic. Here to tell us more is my co host, NP Martha Roberts. Hello, Martha.
1: Hi, Mike. Always good to see you. I'm coming at you from Key West, Florida, where I've been fishing for the last month. So please excuse the different setting. But This month, we're going to discuss needle sticks, not the way you might think, and I'm sharing my own little top 10 list in regards to procedures from www.theproceduralist.org.
0: You're kind of burying the lead. We have a very special guest coming on today.
1: You mean the most special guest ever.
0: that, yeah, that's right. It is the one, the only Dr. Rick Bucata. Here come the horns, the fireworks, all the cheers Do-do. and catcalls. There you go. Yeah, we've got a little all for this man. If you are into medical podcasts, which if you're listening you're at least somewhat interested in medical podcasts, Rick is one of the founding fathers of the genre. He and Dr. Jerry Hoffman were basically podcasting before podcasts and the internet even existed. So we owe a lot to them and their work, Uh, not just me and Martha, but medicine, emergency medicine as a whole. Rick is the creator and the director of the Center for Medical Education, CCME. He is the lead physician. He is the lead faculty instructor. He started in this business of medical education from the very beginning. He's won hundreds of awards, given thousands of lectures, and saved tens of thousands of lives, I'm sure, along the way.
1: You know, I still have a lot of the cassettes. We saved them in a box uh, when they used to do risk management monthly early on and everything else that he did. So, you know, my life actually being one of them, Mike, that uh, Rick has saved numerous times. Uh, I've known Rick for 39 years, in fact, and I think I've known him since I was in utero. But he's not only amazing boss. You know, leader, physician, and a professor. He's an incredible human. So he's one of the most kind people I've ever met. And it's just really great to have him on the show today. We can't wait to bring him on in the end.
0: I know you've got some high standards when it comes to character, as well as medicine and education ability. And he's always exceeded my high standards, it's just like yours. So don't miss it, folks. He's coming on later today.
1: All right. Well, let's jump right into segment one. The first segment is going to address needle sticks, not just in the healthcare worker, but uh, for the patient that's coming in with a needle stick, and we're going to discuss some cases, and remember, that patient could also be you. As clinicians, we need to be armed with the best knowledge about needle sticks, potential bloodborne illnesses, all the risks involved. We also need to know the drugs that we need to use for the prophylaxis, the post-exposure prophylaxis, and we're going to call that PEP. You'll hear us say that throughout, throughout the podcast today. And we're going to talk about how to prescribe them. Also, patients have many emotions, questions, concerns, so we want to help you learn how to address those issues kindly.
0: Let's give you some stats. The Cochrane database reports about 400,000 plus clinicians experiencing needle sticks every year. A quarter of those sticks are happening during surgeries, and that number is growing, not growing smaller, growing bigger, which is very concerning. What's also concerning is that needle sticks are widely underreported. So that number, you probably want to, I don't know, double it at least. These are upsetting, unpleasant experiences. You know how you never forget your your first time? I remember my first time, my first needle stick. I was in Afghanistan. We were taking care of a trauma patient, and the physician I was working with stuck me. And he felt horrible, and I thought, this is it. Son of a gun. I'm not going to get shot or blown up. I'm going to die in Afghanistan from some sort of bloodborne pathogen. Dun, dun, now, dun. Yeah, I know, right? What a way to go. There's no metal for that, unfortunately. No. Uh, you know, the ones we care about typically are HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. And like I alluded to, you, these occupational hazards could be a killer. The risk of transmission from a small bore hypodermic needle stick may be less than 0.1%, but that's not zero, is it?
1: Right. Correct. So it's not zero. So we need to talk about it. I want to address some HIV stats and needles, and then we can talk more about hepatitis later in this segment. Um, Well, thanks to MRAP for some help on some of these stats. And we'll post in the liner notes, some of the great links that they have for needle sticks. The average half-life of HIV on the surface is 28 hours with a maximum of several days. For intravenous needle sharing, the risk of HIV transmission is 0.63%, and for an occupational exposure, the risk of HIV transmission per incident is 0.23% for needle sticks, and about 0.09% for contact with mucous membranes. The risk of HIV transmission per incident of contact with non-intact skin is less than 0.09%, but the precise transmission risk is unknown.
0: We're talking about blood-borne pathogens, but keep in mind, CSF, synovial fluid, perineal fluid, pleural fluid, pericardial fluid, amniotic fluid, these are all potentially infectious. Other bodily fluids, let's say like pus or phlegm, these are much less likely to be infectious unless you can clearly see blood in them.
1: All right, let's go right to the first case. Tell us about it, Mike.
0: Okay, the first case is a 43-year-old man who works as a janitor cleaning bathrooms in the mall, and he got stuck with a syringe left in the trash. No, no medical problems, just super unlucky. Let's talk about how to treat this case, simple needle sticks in or from a public place.
1: So he cleaned the stick out when it first happened, but it doesn't hurt to give it another clean, Again, when he arrives. So avoid caustic cleaning agents. You know, we always tell people don't do betadine soaks. Don't throw bleach on these things. Cleaning products. Soap and water are great. Examine the site. Do a physical exam and get a really good history on the patient.
0: All are important. This is a step-by-step process. While I'm gathering the history, I'm giving the patient some gauze to use as a makeshift sponge. And I just have them scrub that site with soap and water for five minutes in a row. Even though we are going to talk about the what, and that's how we're focused, is the what we need to do for this patient, just as impactful to the patient is the why and the conversations and connections we make during these uh, often scared patients in these encounters in regards to needle sticks.
1: Again, I always try to bring this up in some way, shape, or form in our podcast. Let's talk about communicating sympathetically with the patient and trying to ease their concerns. Now, I think I read some statistic today that due to COVID, an exorbitant amount of people are leaving healthcare, especially the emergency department. So I know it's really hard to get that caring bone back in place. But when I have these patients, I tell them I've had three needle sticks in my career. And I try to give that empathetic chatting with them, um, to give them a chance to sort of be like, Oh wow, you know, maybe I don't feel so dumb or maybe I don't feel so scared or like you're okay kind of thing. Um, and I actually wrote about one of uh, my first cases for EM news and I'll put it in the liner notes about getting stuck by a patient. And it was very traumatic for me. It was also my first day of work. So anyways, well, you could take a chance to read that later, but we do blood tests for these patients. And we do blood tests to make sure that the patient does not have any concerning issues already, and this is a standard suggestion and workup. It's done for all needle sticks, so you can tell the patient that. It doesn't matter what their history is or was. We just say to the patient, we also want to check your kidney function in case we suggest medications for you that we want to give you. We want to make sure that they're going to be safe.
0: Right. That is one of the big things to think about is kidney function when determining what PEP to give. Let's just quick talk about the labs we draw on this particular patient uh, who got a needle stick. We're doing an HIV test, and there are different kinds of tests to order, so talk to your facility about which one you would order for this one. Multiple hepatitis B tests. So we're talking the surface antigen, surface antibody, and the core antigen test. So let's repeat that again. Surface antigen, hepatitis B, surface antibody and core antigen. These are all different hep B titers we're ordering. We're also going to order a hepatitis C antibody test, and then your basic liver and renal function tests, and if applicable, a pregnancy test as well.
1: Yes. Remember, Here are some quick notes on hepatitis B. In hep B carriers, in patients with chronic hepatitis B, they will have a positive hepatitis antigen result, which indicates the presence of active hep B replication and high infectivity. A negative hep B antigen means that the patient does not have hepatitis or potentially minimal infectivity. Positive hepatitis B antibodies results because that indicates inactivity of the virus and low infectivity but they've had some response. They've created an antibody to hepatitis B. And at this time, the virus is either inactive or has low rates of transmission when you see the antibody present. You can also have a positive surface antibody test if you have had the hepatitis B vaccine. Now the core antigen, also known as IgM, also should be tested for. And this test looks for antibodies IgM in the blood. And the test is used to find out whether the patient is actively infected with hepatitis B virus. Um, And your immune system makes these IgM antibodies for the core of the hepatitis B virus during the active stage of the infection. The key is deciphering these tests when they come back from the lab, which can be a pain in the butt. And I'm not going to lie. I often have to use a cheat sheet because it can get confusing. And I am giving you a great chart breakdown that literally involves pluses and So you can kind of just put those all together when your results come back and you can figure out, hey, like this is exactly what I have going on with this patient because You know, we have to remember a lot, Mike. So that's something I like to use as a cheat sheet. So check it out in the liner notes.
0: Yeah, it's not worth uh, taking extra effort to memorize this if you don't already have it memorized. Basically, if you have the surface antibody and you've been vaccinated and that's the only antibody you have, that means this person was never been infected before. But if you have multiple kinds of antibodies, that's concerning for an actual infection in their past. Right. Other side notes here, let's say you have the source person. Uh, they're available for testing. Please do try to get um, testing from that source patient if it's available. Again, we're doing HIV testing. We're doing the same hepatitis B testing, surface antigen, surface antibody, core antigen, and hepatitis C antibody testing. Now, this is super helpful because if we can get negative tests from the source patient, we can stop doing these tests for this patient who got the needle stick. Because we're not talking about one-time testing in the ER. We're talking about months of testing, which means potentially months of worrying for this patient. And we can avoid putting them through post-exposure prophylaxis, the PEP as well. I think there is some anxiety from these source patients about getting tested too. Um and, and sometimes it takes talking to that source patient and relieving their anxieties as well. It can be something as simple as, well, you know, how do I, how am I going to pay for this testing? I'm sure that your facility can work that out and not put that burden on the source patient. There's got to be a way to figure that out. You know, uh, I think we talk about how reporting happens lower than actual incidents. Something else to talk about here, I want to say, is that these PEP medications, we kind of hinted at these things here. I think that we used to think about these, especially the HIV PEP regimen. It's a very kind of noxious, lots of side effects, lots of possible bad outcomes just from taking the pep drugs. But if it makes people out there who have had needle sticks or if you get a needle stick in the future if it makes you feel any better these newest hiv post exposure drugs specifically the integrase inhibitor class these are very well tolerated with minimal side effects you know maybe a little bit of a you know muscle soreness and increased creatine kinase but again these are rare much rarer than the side effect profile from previous pep regimens
1: Yeah. Very good, Mike. So let's give people the actual who's getting HIV PEP. All right. Who should it be offered to? Number one, HIV exposure occurred within 72 hours. We're giving them PEP. All right. It can be done after 72 hours. Sure. Sure. But that's when expert consult comes into play and the statistics, you know, there are a lot of unknowns. Those are very complicated cases for sure. And the U.S. Public Health Service recommends PEP up to one week after exposure, if the exposure is considered very high risk. For example, a sharps injury from a needle that was in an artery or a vein of an HIV-infected source patient. That's just one example. Again, expert consultation is important here. Number two, PEP should be offered if the exposure poses a substantial risk of HIV transmission. Now, that is when the uh, uh, patient-clinician conversation is super important. Finally, you know... Random needles in the trash can, you know, who the heck knows? Uh, We presume HIV could be on the needle, but we don't know. So we offer the PEP. So uh, thirdly, we also treat with PEP if the baseline HIV status of the exposed patient is negative. Okay, so that's another thing to take into consideration.
0: Here are the drug regimens. So let's talk first about the regimen, the first-line treatment for adults. And in this situation, that's considered to be 13 years or older with a normal renal function. So the drugs are called tenofovir, DF, 300 milligrams, and Mtricitabine 200 milligrams. That's also known as Truvada, the brand name there. And that's going to be once a day every 24 hours. That's a daily regimen for those two drugs, plus you're going to add either raltegravir every 12 hours or doyutegravir, and that's once a day. So depending on what's available in your area and uh, you know adherence, Those are your options there, either raltegravir or dolutegravir. Generally, you're going to want to consult an infectious disease specialist in cases involving children. So again, here we're talking about 12 and under pregnant women or individuals with a decreased renal function. And we'll talk about some of those special cases here in a second.
1: You know, Mike, one important thing I wanted to bring up is that PEP can also be used for sexual assault, unprotected sex, and concerns of HIV or known or HIV in hospital employee needle sticks, of course, like we talked about. Offer those patients STD testing the ones that are there for sexual assault, unprotected sex, uh, for uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. And, and just a few other random pearls, keep in mind, due to ethical and lo- logistical complexities, no randomized control trials have been performed to assess the efficacy of PEP in preventing HIV transmission. So I just, um, you know, there might be some out there. If you guys have any that you know about, please let me know.
0: Right, yeah, that's that's pretty hairy for sure, like testing on pregnant women for things. Right. Uh, you know, we found this statistic from the literature thanks to MRAP to date. There have been no documented cases of HIV transmission after percutaneous injury, a needle stick, from a needle discarded in a public setting. So you can tell that to the janitor as well. Say, hey, there's no literature that suggests this has ever happened before. This is a very low risk but not a zero risk event. And so that really makes this discussion with patients difficult because often they're looking to you asking, you tell me what I should do. Okay. Uh, in the end, I tell these patients, look, I can't make the decision for you. I can just give you the advice and, and, and kind of help you, help be there for you. The risk is minimal, but it's not zero.
1: Right, Sweet. Patients love when we confuse them. All right. So next <laughs> week, we want to address how to treat the hepatitis concerns and other bloodborne illnesses. All right.
0: Right, we mentioned what lab testing to get for the hepatitis B and C. Now, According to the CDC, hep B infection is well recognized and studied and is an occupational risk for healthcare workers, that's why we are asked to get those vaccinations, as well as those who have needle sticks in general. The tr- transmission risk is between 6 and 30 percent, depending on the absence or presence of the hepatitis B antigens, whatever titers are in that source patient's blood. Remember, check out that chart from the Hepatitis B Foundation to help you navigate the results of the hepatitis testing. Now, when it comes to um, contagiousness, hepatitis is scarier in terms of contagiousness when it comes to needle sticks. In studies of healthcare workers who sustain injuries from needle sticks uh, contaminated with blood containing hepatitis B virus, the risk of developing clinical hepatitis if you get that needle stick is much higher than HIV.
1: Yeah. So what about PEP for hepatitis B? The CDC states the mean stay of PEP for hepatitis B is the hepatitis B vaccine. But in certain circumstances, hepatitis B immunoglobulin is recommended in addition to the vaccine for added protection. And again, that's when things get tricky and you will definitely need to discuss this with the ID specialist.
0: We've always at least been offered the hepatitis B vaccine. It's usually a three-dose scheduled on a calendar kind of a thing. So look up the schedule and make sure you arrange that uh, and tell the patient when they're supposed to be getting it so they do it right. No point in memorizing that. Um, interesting fact, people who are more obese may require some adjustment in their needle length for administering hepatitis B vaccination to achieve optimal seroprotection. protection. If you wanna give the immunoglobulin as well, this is again a discussion with infectious disease or a helpline that we can give you in the liner notes.
1: Right, so a final word on hepatitis C. Um, What is the risk of acquiring hepatitis C after being accidentally exposed to someone that has this in their body fluid or potentially? So according to the CDC, a recent analysis of several studies revealed an overall 0.2% risk for infection among those exposed to hepatitis C through needle sticks or sharp injuries. And here's the kicker. The CDC does not recommend PEP to people exposed to hepatitis C contaminated blood, mostly because we really don't have any good treatments for PEP. So although a lot of research is being done, they suggest instead the patient be tested for hep C RNA or hepatitis C antibodies.
0: Well, that's a lot for our first case of that poor janitor. The next case, like many of our patients in the ED, is a twofer. A mom brings in her seven-year-old child, and they both have needle stick injuries. The child poked his finger on a hypodermic needle. He accidentally came across in the park, and when he started crying, mom ran over to him, and she accidentally stuck herself with the same needle. This comes just after she had found out the night before that she was pregnant, (laughs) after doing a home pregnancy test, with the first day of her last menstrual period about 40 days ago. Both patients have no chronic medical issues.
1: You got to laugh, man. This is so horrific. I'm already, like, banging my head against the wall. That's horrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, my my jaw would be dropping
0: if we had these patients in in the ER for real, if this really happened.
1: You can't make this stuff up. All right. right. Let's talk
0: about the pregnant woman in her first trimester first. We talked about the drug dolutegravir as one of the options, one of the two options for that class of medications for a PEP regimen previously. Now, a couple of years ago, the FDA released a safety alert for dolutegravir for women who are able to become pregnant. This is based on a report out of Botswana about babies born to mothers who are taking dolutegravir at the time of conception. Because of this, it's recommended that dolutegravir be avoided in, number one, persons of childbearing potential who are sexually active or have been sexually assaulted and who are not using an effective birth control method, you know, like some sort of IUD or oral or injectable contraception. Also, it's recommended that this drug be avoided in persons early in pregnancy, and early here is considered eight weeks since the last menstrual period. Now tenofovir, DF, plus raltegravir is the recommended regimen for these early in pregnancy patients. Now, as you could probably figure out because they share the same suffix, raltegravir and dolitegravir are both in the same family of drugs, but raltegravir has an over 10-year record of safety with no known risks to fetal development like the other drug. That being said, it's no known risks. So, make sure you still have that nuanced talk with your patient. Two other drugs to avoid in pregnant women are any drug regimen containing cobicistat because of decreased drug levels during pregnancy, and bictegravir, another tegravir-type drug. Its chemical structure, understandably, very similar to dolotegravir, and so the same concerns apply about fetal development.
1: All right, so what about the kid? What are we doing for him?
0: Right, so kids, and we're talking again, ages two through 12 here. So under two is considered a different class of medications. But if you are two through 12 years old, normal renal function, we're doing tenovivir-DF, we're doing emtricitabine and raltegravir, and we're dosing by age and weight here. Of course, you're gonna wanna look that up. If your kid is 13 years and older, you'd use the adult PEP regimen that we talked about earlier.
1: Awesome. Okay. So in summary, treat and evaluate the patient. Be sympathetic, make sure the needle stick wound is clean, and then- Get the right lab tests on the patient or the source patient, if you're able to, in-house. You know, give the proper HIV and hep B, PEP to the patient. Note there's no hep C treatment or PEP. Look up the doses. Don't go off your memory. Be sure you are doing the proper current guidelines. And know when we're talking about needle sticks here, again, if there's sexual assault, discuss with the same nurse, um, that specialist that can help and offer STD PEP, uh, most of all, if you're confused, you can talk to ID or call this hotline. It's the Clinician Consultation Center PEP hotline. Can be reached at 1 888 448 4911. Did I sound like an old radio host there? That was the goal. <laughs> anyway, awesome. we'll, we'll put it in the uh, liner notes. Okay. We also encourage you to read the CDC guidelines and take a look at some of their algorithms, which are really cool um, for weird cases like human bites or what to do if someone drinks infected breast milk? Uh, what if you get semen in your eye? Notes on sexual assault and semen, notes on rates of infection depending on type of sexual encounter and with whom and other cases that you may encounter, like those zebra ones. Um, we don't have time to cover all those today, but uh, you know, I'd like to go through a list of some of the other bloodborne pathogens we should be afraid of.
0: Yeah, talk about whatever you want as long as it's not semen in your eye.
1: Yeah, okay, so other pathogens, okay, that we worry about. Hepatitis D, hepatitis G, cytomegalovirus, epstein-barr virus, parvovirus, um, West Nile virus, malarial parasites, prion agents, blah, 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 Ebola, toxoplasmosis. I just wanted to say as many of those as I possibly could. Okay, that's enough.
0: Yeah, that'd be a heck of a thing to get mad cow disease from a needle stick. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right, Mike, all right, Mike, 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 I want to dive into our next segment, our usual procedures segment, but I want to do something different this month. I'm going to mix it up, keep it kind of fresh, short, sweet, and focus on some basic procedural plans and ideas. And this is based on the feedback that we've been getting. And I want to address this top question of what ER and urgent care procedures do I really need to know?
0: Yeah, um, this can be a little controversial, but I feel like procedures are one of the places that we as PAs and NPs can really demonstrate our value. When a clinician is required to be at bedside for a prolonged period of time for a procedure, things can really grind to a halt in an ED or an urgent care. With the workflow of most EDs, I think it's preferable, frankly, that it's a PA or an NP to do that procedure they can handle so that the the physician is freed up to do whatever they need to do. There's lots of reasons for that, but also another thing is that usually we're better at the procedures because we're doing them all the time. You know, we're suturing every day, we're draining abscesses every day. If we can do the procedure and the EP can keep chugging along and being available for whatever critical patient comes in, when those patients usually preferably go to the physicians in those settings, I think that's a win for the entire department and the patients.
1: You know, originally I wanted to dive into lateral epicondylitis and show an injection on uh, www.theproceduralist.org. But then that got me to thinking that's such a specialty for well-seasoned NPs and PAs. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself like, ah, it's not that hard. What are you talking about? You know, these procedures can be tricky and if you might be easy once you learn them and it's like clockwork but i'll get to why you should still kind of keep things fresh there in a second i want us to focus on the top 10 list of things that we really should know now the list of course is debatable but it also goes off kind of the literature about what the most seen issues are in the er and urgent care and it applies also to our skill set and again Everybody's got a different skill set. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be doing more. I'm not saying you should be doing less. But you know, a lot of people ask me, Martha, what are you good at? How'd you learn that? How did you do that? What should I be best at? You know. And this is what I say to them. There's well, like, what do you think I say to them?
0: I bet you say a couple things, but what's the one thing you're thinking of?
1: Well, first, I say, wait, where's the bathroom? I gotta take care of that. No. <laughs> I say, don't get too comfortable, all right? When you get comfortable, that's when you forget things and you make mistakes. So I like to keep it fresh. I keep saying, watch others and their technique. I modify mine. You know, I like to be open-minded. I always like, you know, working on going from good to great. And, and no one is perfect. We must keep all the basics in mind. Don't get too fancy, sure. There are fancy things, you know, specialty injections, like we've already said, great but don't get too confident. Be sure to know all the procedures well, baseline stuff, before doing things like lateral epicondylitis injections. Like if you don't know how to put in a simple IV and use a needle, you know, like I wouldn't be jumping right to injections uh, in, in any area. You know, occipital blocks, nerve blocks, all those things, they come with time. Now vessel loop for abscess, that has great promise. It can be great for patients, but simple IND is really the treatment, okay? You don't need to get too fancy. Nasal intubation, Great skill, but do 100 regular intubations before you even start contemplating this one. Learn, repeat, respect, watch, practice before implementing. See one, do one, teach one, all that stuff.
0: I love all of that, especially the open-mindedness. It can be a sore point for a lot of PAs and NPs about how often we have to adapt to how different clinicians we work with do things differently. But I like seeing different ways to do things. I think new clinicians especially, new PAs and NPs get caught up in how they learned kind of one way to do things right out of school. And any deviation from that is considered wrong because, like, they were in test-taking mode for a while. There's one right way, and there's several, you know, wrong choices on the multiple-choice test. But in reality, there's lots of right ways to practice medicine and a few wrong ways but often more right than wrong ways it's important to know different ways to do things i think the past couple years have really taught us that equipment runs out drugs go on national back order and you better have a backup plan a backup drug a backup everything
1: yep absolutely um The other reason why I want to discuss this is because there are physicians out there that do not like APPs learning more. It's been in the news. It's been on social media. You know, some are even asking for a ban on ER residencies and training for PAs and MPs. They think that we're trying to take their jobs and outdo them, replace them. This is not how I run my boat. We need captains, first mates, lookouts, parrots, you know, the whole team. I mean, I don't know why my mind's going to pirate here. But anyway, you know, I did watch the movie Waterworld the other day, and it was really good. Very long, but very good. Anyway, I, I am a member of a team, and everyone's on the team. They have a job, a role for us all. Now, I could say a lot about this. But I'm going to just leave it at this. Keep learning and being the best that you can be because when the department is busy and people need help, you'll be called upon to do the work, whatever it is. And you'll need to be good and know what to do. You can't just be trained to do one small part of the grand scheme of everything. You have to to at least be open to learning as much as you can in that large environment of information. So I want to touch upon these 10 procedures in the department because you need to be good at them and then you need to be great at them. And you need to keep getting better and these you know this is like you get really decent and then you're that fire in someone's pocket when the storm is breaking out in your department and you want people to know you for your work like an artist so before i get into them i want to just say the procedural pause for emergency medicine news, I covered pretty much every single procedure at least twice over in detail for the last 10 years. And you can access all those videos and blogs and update yourself. And I also started putting some new things on the new site that we talked about on the procedural list, um, which we associate with this podcast now. Again, it will be in the liner notes. But, you know, I might suggest also Robertson Hedges. I'm a bit biased on that one, but it's a great book. And we're actually currently working on the eighth edition now. It just got an email about it this morning so pretty exciting stuff
0: well that being said martha let's talk about the top 10 procedures in no particular order that you really need to be good at to stay competent and quick in the er you know people come out of school sometimes not knowing procedures very well these are the big ones where you should start Uh, i see your list and so let's go ahead and read it right here so number one suturing and wound repair in general number two abscess treatment, specifically IND and when to not and when to do INDs. Three, reductions, whether it's small joints or simple fractures. Four, be splinting those joints and fractures. Next would be ultrasound-guided IV access or or even as good basic IV access skills. Next, number six, Earwax removal. All right. I'll let Martha justify that one here in a second. I don't, that one's kind of the, the black sheep in this list, but all right, whatever. Number seven, eye procedures, especially the slit lamp exam. Number eight, nasal packing. Nine, nasogastric tube placement, NG tubes. And 10, LPs or central lines. And you say pick one or the other. Okay, August, you're going to explain that one here in a second. Okay, let's hear it.
1: Yes. So this is going to be sort of a food for thought list and motivational discussion. So first of all, this top 10 list minus intubation are some of the top procedures done in the ER. Yes. Emergent procedures in the ER. ENT procedures are high up there, not only on why people go to the ER, but on the APP skill list, just like lines and drains as well. I added those sort of as a bonus and uh, you need to know about Foley's, CUDA's, JP drains, reinserting feeding tubes, know all the tubes and drains. Just when you think that you have not seen a tube or a drain somewhere in somebody's body, you're going to see one somewhere and you're going to be like, oh, I know what that is because I looked that up before and I recall. So I got some newish blogs up on skin grafts and I talk about JP drains up on the blog this month. You can take a look at as well. So knowing how to suture, number one, is super important. Proper Uh, abscess drainage as well is super crucial and fast track. You got to, okay, the, the thing here with procedure, identify it, be able to do it efficiently and quickly and painlessly as best you can, but knowing when to call plastics for something that you can't handle or general surge if the abscess is concerning for more such as admission. So it's not just the doing, it's the knowing and either transferring or calling a consult. And, and those are things that will come with time, but at least have some insight and awareness that you need to do. Now, there are lots of suturing techniques. My main focus here is simple interrupted and the mattress. Those are keys. Get good at those. And your technique is super important. Um, You know, super, super important. You can get good at that by practicing on a lot of fruit.
0: (laughs) If we're talking speedy suturing, I got to throw my vote in for a third important technique, the running suture for our big suture uh, jobs.
1: Right. So I tend to actually, I'm going to disagree with you here. Um, I do put it on the list, Mike, but I avoid the running suture unless it's within like a a tight space area, like in the toes, the finger webs, the armpit, the underwear line, where you don't want the poking knots from something like a mattress or an interrupted suture. I'm not a fan of the running suture because they're more prone to scar and they can get really sloppy, but I do appreciate the quick fix in areas well hidden, or as I mentioned, don't need a bunch of knots poking you around. So I'd like to see examples of your running suture, if you wouldn't mind.
0: My running sutures are immaculate. They are not sloppy oh, good Lord. at all. I have perfect left to right. So see, I, I do. we're going to go a little off script here, but like, instead of going diagonal, it's hard to get good diagonal orientation, which a lot of running sutures do. I like to do under the skin as my, my diagonal throw so that on top of the skin where the patient can actually see the suture line, it just goes left to right perpendicular across the incision line. It looks super good. I love my running sutures.
1: All right. Well, I'd like a photo of your next one, please. and <laughs> Got it. Um, I'd like a, a two-week and two-year follow-up in that study. Okay. okay. The only th- The only thing I want to talk about for splinting and reductions is basically be your go-to person for splinting and reductions or should I say reductions and splinting so don't call ortho with or a tech to do it you can do this this is also why reductions are on the list because if you're if you're dealing with a reduction and you reduce it only you know how to put on the right splint and you should do it and do it correctly you spend more time looking for a tech calling someone Organizing something, moving the patient, put the freaking splint on yourself. I'm sorry. I can't stand when people are like, I'm done with my reduction. Where's the tech to put on my splint? Give me a break. Do your own splint.
0: You know, I agree that you should be the expert on splinting and be able to check the splint after and troubleshoot it if necessary. Because, you know, sometimes the, the tech does their best job, but it needs to be padded a little bit more or put on a little bit more snug. Um, And a side note, you can bill for splint checks too, so chart that you did the splint check. Now, as far as who puts it on, that's going to be a little workflow-dependent where I'm working. I may take that time to discharge a few patients and then come back after the tech has done their thing and bless off on that splint. Martha, you mentioned ultrasound-guided IVs. Now, like we talked about, would it just be okay to be really good at getting a first-time stick on someone without ultrasound guidance?
1: So, uh, yes and no, absolutely in some cases, but those superficial veins, if they're not great, you're just going to have to go deep. And despite, even if you're awesome, the vein's going to blow. The patient doesn't need 15 sticks. So the key here is to take the course at your hospital, usually offered by the nursing team on how to put it in an ultrasound guided IV. And once you learn to do this, you'll get really excited about ultrasound. want to do it way more. And then you can come to one of our boot camp courses and find a mentor, um, you know, this just—it's a fabulous type of procedural uh, adjunct that you can put into your your whole repertoire. So keep that in mind.
0: Well, I gotta ask about the next item on your list. Here we go earwax. I, I can just hear everyone yelling at their stereos and phones right now because a lot of people don't want to deal with earwax in the ER. Why are you so passionate about earwax? This is not an emergency. Are we really going to spend all this time doing earwax removal in the ER or urgent care? Like I can see it at urgent care, but in the ER, you got to convince me here.
1: All right. So as I mentioned, ENT procedures are one of the big reasons people come to the emergency department and uh, quite frankly, the advanced practice provider is usually the clinician that sees this patient, all right? Um, especially a lot of those pediatric patients uh, with things in their ears, their nose, sore throats, all those things we're seeing. We're good. We're good at ENT stuff. We're good at the head and the neck. We are, we have that stuff down. But the reason why, I, I've written about earwax and things in the ear and otitis many, many times, uh, but the reason why I bring it up is is twofold, really. I want to to do this discussion on ta- on the procedure of earwax removal because it's an easy skill that you can do. So the first answer is easy to do, just add drops, wait and irrigate. Two, number two, the patient gets immediate relief. So you're right, it's not emergent. I've worked with many physicians that see this complaint, you know, they, they sign up for the patient immediately and then discharge the patient without doing anything. So there are physicians that take on the mentality that this is not emergent and They've had a medical screening exam and now they go home, (laughs) you know, and then I work with others who will pick it up and then assign me the task to fix it. And then they discharge the patient. So finally, I'd like to mention that when a patient like this signs in, take it immediately because like I said, this is super easy to do. Number two, it gives the patient relief. And three, fixing, excuse me, not fixing this is not going to stop the patients from coming in. You need to stop pretending like you're going to make a difference on who's coming and who's not. So God, this person may not be able to get into an ENT or a doctor for another two weeks. Why did you just waste that person's time? They're not wasting yours. You're wasting theirs. So sure. It's not an emergency, but hey, the patient is here. We can fix it, so why not, and who knows? Maybe the patient has an infection brewing back behind there, and now you've cleared the road for them to really heal and remove their earwax. It's okay to do this. It's an important skill. Don't be a jerk.
0: All right, I'll buy off on that. I'm not going to lie. The day I get to remove a foreign body from someone in the ED is a good day. Like Someone comes in with a problem, I fix it, and they leave feeling better? That's a perfect patient for the ED. You know, for ENT procedures in general, pretty much the only reason someone goes to an ENT for a procedure is after we in the ED refer them. They're probably coming to us in the ED first because they can't get into the ED. So, yeah, I agree. Get real good at ENT complaints and know when it's time to call in backup. At the same time, understand that, let's say, a bead, in a, a plastic bead, right, in a kid's ear is not truly emergent in the sense that you have to put the patient at risk or through, um, you know, unnecessary uh, stress uh, to remove it that day, especially if you don't have the right equipment, especially in patients who aren't willing to tolerate the procedure. uh, It's okay to to reassure the child and the mom and to punt that to ED as an outpatient.
1: Yeah, there's always exceptions to all the rules, and you need to be aware of what you can, can't do, and, and how you can do it. But, you know, also, um, like I said, the healthcare system isn't changing today. You know, these patients are coming to you. Sure, it's not an emergency. We we don't use the emergency department correctly. Healthcare is screwed up in this country. We all know that, but that's not what this podcast is about. So do your job, and that's removing earwax. Anyway, this brings me to more head and neck issues in the ER, right? So I want to Sort of slip in these two thoughts. Knowing how to do a good ocular exam and diagnosing ocular issues is critical for APPs. Not only are there a million diagnoses with eye pain, trauma, vision loss, blurry vision, but treating traumatic eye injuries seems to be a top procedural skill for APPs in the ER. So, again, work with physicians who will pick up these patients. Okay, have them help you learn the slit lamp or another advanced practice provider who knows how to use the slit lamp and do a good exam. It takes 15 minutes to learn this and it's so so important and again in the liner notes I provide a five minute uh, go-to video for eye procedures and using the slit lamp it's really great my, my good old buddy Adam Cohen back from uh, Dartmouth he gave us a great video on how to use the slit lamp so I'll put that up for you guys don't be afraid of the machine it's really great it's not hard to use
0: you know there are now slit lamp attachments you can mount on smartphones Maybe that's the way we finally get people to do slit line exams in the the ER just to embrace that technology and make it a a cool, sexy new thing instead of that old and busted thing with cobwebs sitting in the corner, you know? (sighs) Uh, I'm looking forward to giving the eye lecture at our emergency medicine boot camp live in July. And yes, just like the ENT complaints, patients are coming to us first for their eye complaints, so we better get good.
1: Oh, the eye lecture, one of my favorites. I used to do that talk, but now I'm gifting it to you. I hope you like it. So- Anyway, uh, you didn't like my joke?
0: You didn't like Ah, I, I see. I, I, I heard you. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. I want to add now about knowing about nasal packing. Okay, that's also critical. Know how to use nasal packing material. Be aware of the different types and the meds that you can use to help stop bleeding. I'll tell you, cocaine, still a great drug. Um, you know, doing the mixture of TXA, uh, lidocaine, nepinephrine, great combo. Um, And I do another really great video on that in which we will post. Again, these are all procedural pearls that I've been wanting to get out there for you guys all at once. And it's like total procedural vomit right now in your face. (laughs) So um, this is also one of those procedures, uh, nasal packing, that you want to get um, dressed up for. You want to dress for the occasion.
0: Like your expensive scrubs?
1: No, no, no. Like the fancy paper gown, the face mask, (laughs) the, the crown, eyewear. Five masks, four sets of gloves. I mean, you got to get all dolled up for this one. So anyway, and then my quick thought on NG tubes. The reason why this one makes the list is because this is hard to do sometimes, especially on awake patients. Yeah, that's tough. You have to have the touch, right? So there are a lot of pearls you need to keep in mind when inserting an NG tube. Tough stuff. Patients need you to hold their hand, literally. Literally. It's not just about being able to get the tube down. It's about comforting that patient. And, you know, think about like the last time you needed to shove anything up your nose that, ugh, I hope that hasn't been on anybody's list recently.
0: Like other than my finger or what are we talking about yeah, here? Yeah, get All that right. down. Move that away. <laughs> You know, being the person who can drop the NG tube is super useful. The RT is prepping the emergency physician or whoever is intubating the patient. They drop the ET tube. You pop right in there and drop the NG tube. X-ray snapped, and boom, the patient is ready for action. Or the action's over, really. (laughs) my nurses are working on the meds and sedating the patient maybe getting other lines so it's like the orchestra of the trauma bay and it's a beautiful thing uh, when it's working in sync that really brings us full circle here the team mentality how everyone can have a job out there folks there's not a lot of pie to eat and there's no one profession that could eat all of this pie okay we all need to know how to do these procedures so like uh, you know, the things get done and we have good throughput through the ER.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that brings me to my final procedural pearl here. I found that some of the APPs in my department are great at LPs and others are great at central lines. I don't know. It just seems to be a thing. I really like owning one of these procedures. I know physicians whom I work with uh, will will ask me if, They attempt and they miss. It feels kind of like an honor for me. And sometimes it it just takes a different eye and a a steady hand and someone that's not as sweaty. And for central lines, although I do get pretty sweaty, uh, for central lines, again, during an intubation, a trauma, everyone needs a job. So if you can pop in a central line while the physician is intubating, think about how much time is saved and patients will get better care. Now, I'm not saying that you can only be good at LPs or central lines. You got to pick one or the other for sure. But... Those two big procedures need a lot of practice, and they're not like every single patient you see. So there might be a week, two weeks, a month that goes by that maybe you don't do either one. So I'm hoping that you, as the APP in your department, the procedural person in your department, can be the go-to person for any skill that you think that you're going to master and be good at.
0: I love seeing someone combine you know, their passion and experience and skill acquired over the years. I know that's you and procedures, Marcia. So that was great. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Mike. And, and, you know, just some procedural pearls of wisdom. I, I also wanted to share, um, just, they're going to keep coming out and we'll put them on the list as we continue to publish stuff on the proceduralist.org and here on the two view we'll cover a, a procedure in the future, um, on each podcast. So, uh, remember, don't get too comfortable. Keep it classy, you know, stay current, watch others, check out all the techniques. It only, you know, will take you from good to great. All right, Mike. So typically we have a third segment discussing something business or tech like and answer some Facebook questions. But as I mentioned, we have a very special guest this week and he's going to be talking about one of the top complaints in the ER and that is back pain. So we're going to move on to our final segment and let's bring on the beast. Rick, can you hear me?
2: Yes, I can. Uh, Hello to Key West and um, somewhere in Texas. uh, Yeah, I'm
0: Dallas. We'll call it Dallas. Dallas. Okay, okay.
2: We are missed here.
0: No one knows where Farmer's Branch is. We'll just call it
2: Dallas. Dallas, okay. And uh, I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm uh, actually near Pasadena.
0: Well, Rick, thanks so much for being here. We want to jump into our back pain segment. But first, we want to remind people that we're not really going down the track of exactly which pain medications are best for back pain, going into the literature about opioids, other drugs we don't use for back pain. Um, We're going to go kind of down the more diagnostic and kind of thought process route. How to mentally, you know, engage these patients and, and, and kind of how to analyze these patients and and clinically diagnose them. These are three real cases. They were all in fast tracks that, you know, either me or Martha may have seen or other folks had seen. Uh, I don't think it's a shift goes by without me seeing somebody with back pain. This is about one out of 10 patients we see in the ER, and it's going to come to urgent care, and it's not always an urgent care, uh, you know, treat them and treat them problem. There can be traumatic back pain, yes, but also some non-traumatic, some inf- some metastatic concerns, or a lot of other random stuff too.
1: Right, but also side note, Mike, if you want to hear about the uh, pain medication and the tracks that you go down and what you use and don't use very specifically and why, we highly suggest you look at our awesome pain panel and interview that we did with Dr. Sergei Motav. We did uh, a few months ago. We did it on YouTube. We had a a chat forum, and we brought on a lot of specialists, some experts on that panel included dr ken milne we had uh dr rick pescator rick bucata was there uh mike and myself were there and of course sergey the expert on pain by the way you should follow him on twitter um and we'll give you his uh twitter site in the liner notes
0: he is the king of pain for sure i've listened to him before and i still learn stuff um from that talk that faculty forum we'll post that link to the faculty forum too whether you like it as audio or youtube Rick, I'm going to start asking you about the first case here, so put on your thinking cap. This is a 25-year-old female with low back pain as the chief complaint. Now, she works in a gas station. She sits a lot for her job, but she's a little on the overweight side. She had to lift this heavy soda case repetitively at the end of the day, and last night she did 15 by herself, more than usual. This morning, she woke up with some low back pain, and she's having severe back pain. She says, I threw my back out, um, and I did this before when I played volleyball in high school. Normal vitals, no medical history, isn't on any medications, has tried some acetaminophen for her pain. That helped a little bit. Her exam is benign. Um, There's no neurological symptoms, um, but there's pain, lots of pain, when she bends forward and backward. She feels better just up and walking around. Rick, how would you approach this patient?
2: Well, this is a really, really common case, and uh, they come to the emergency department expecting um, us to do something, especially if you made them wait two hours. You you have to reward that (laughs) wait. So uh, this person would get a really uh, good exam. I'm really a believer in the good exam. You have to have their, if they're wearing pants, the pants have to be off. You have to see their back. You uh, have to be able to have them stand and look whether they have any kind of muscular scoliosis that is developed as a result of this spasming. I want to see what their range of motion is, uh, more to the right, more to the left, uh, forward and backwards. I'm certainly going to be testing their reflexes and um, and testing their sensation. I'm going to see how they walk. By far the most uh, telling thing in terms of a neurologic exam is a person's at least from a motor point of view, uh, um, is watching them walk. Uh, so that that's going to happen, and I'm going to basically uh, find that there's no focal neurologic symptoms on this patient. That's what my assumption is because um, I don't know what the answer is to this case is, and I'm basically going to tell her that it's that we it's you probably strain something some, that which is g- generally an explanation that patients understand. You he, probably strained something. He, I don't think you broke any bones in your body, so uh, there's no point in really getting an X-ray. Um, uh, and I would like to avoid that if possible. There's a fair amount of radiation that you'll get if we'd have to do an X-ray, so I'd rather avoid that. Particularly, it'll be to your ovaries, and. Um, let's just see if we can get you feeling more comfortable over the la- next several days. So we're going to send them out with ambulation to the extent that they're able to do it. And clearly, if there's really, really severe pain, um, I, I think that I think if people walk into the ER, they should be able to walk out. If you can't walk out of the ER, and if you're going out, I'll give you a wheelchair on your way out only because, you know, I'm going to be nice but I, but I know you can walk out, you know, kind of thing. Uh, we've had some bad experiences with people who w- weren't able to walk out of the ER. So I would, I, w- I would do that. I would just encourage them. I was going to say, this is going to resolve. Uh, it may take uh, a little time. The statistics on it are really very, very good. And at her young age, I wouldn't expect that she has any kind of issues. And frankly, If she does, those issues don't have to be identified today. She could have spondylolisthesis. She could have, uh, you know, some weird stuff. It doesn't honestly matter. Um, She has no evidence of any kind of radiculopathies. So I'm just going to kind of suggest that she... She's allowed to get off her feet for the first couple of days only, but she's going to get rapidly detuned if she stayed in bed. So she's up and about as tolerated as certainly if you have any new or worsening symptoms, uh, we want to see you sooner. But otherwise, you ought to check in with your doctor in the next uh, three or four days. And I think one of the important things, too, is not to have them see their doctor in some time frame where there's not going to be any appreciable difference and so you've made a $300 visit, $200 visit uh for initial visit to a doctor and for a new problem and in, and you know darn well it's not going to be substantially better in 2 days. So I'd give him some reasonable time frame where we could expect either it's going to either get better, worse, or stay the same. That's the only three things that can, the conditions can do. Or you could get new symptoms. pain going down your legs or something like that. If you have any of those things, if you can't see your doctor, come right back at the emergency department. We're, we're here 24-7.
1: All right, Rick, are you ready for the next case? I'm ready. Okay. 55-year-old female with a history of back pain in fast track. She's had back pain for two weeks. She went to the PCP who gave her Flexoril and Motrin. She has not gotten better. Today, her left leg feels numb. She has has decreased sensation in L4, L5 distribution. She says she can control her bowel, her bladder, um, doesn't have problems necessarily walking, but it is painful. Like, so she can get up. She says that's not really the the problem but you can tell she's in pain um, she says she's pretty healthy she denies any other subjective complaints she really doesn't have any other issues she doesn't have a fever her vital signs are within normal limits and uh, we want to know what you would do for this patient or what else you might want to know
2: well this uh, lady is suffering from some neuropathic pain which is a h- horrible pain to have it's a it's a boring deep, Hard to localize kind of pain, and um, the sciatic nerve seems to be compromised here in some way. Now, usually we think of it being compromised by a disc protruding, and and uh, on one of the nerve roots and causing the problem, and that's usually the usually the case. In the in the past, people would uh, basically say most of these are going to clear. On their own over time. Again, it's the same kind of thing where you're going to give them uh, an encouraging story in terms of their out- outcomes, because most of them are very positive. You're going to do that. But things have changed more recently. And if you have a, an acute disc, I think sending people home with well, here's your pain medicine. Our pain medicine is going to be different here in, in the setting. We would use neuropathic pain is not relieved by the drugs that we traditionally use, and so this is where we switch over to the gabapentinoids, particularly uh, pregabalin. Pregabalin, which is Lyrica, um, it, it it that's the kind of drug that is generally used for this kind of a uh, pain. Uh, You can also use uh, duloxetine, which is uh, I forget the trade name of that. Um,
0: Cymbalta, I think. Yeah.
2: Yes. So those are kind of the drugs for neurologic kind of pain, and I think most people are not used to prescribing those out of the emergency department. But I think this person needs to see somebody who may be able to fix her. Um, One of our one of our nurses in our ER uh, developed an acute disc. and went to, was referred to one of the, uh, I, don't, I don't know, was it? I think this was one of the neurosurgeons. Anyway, it was such an obvious kind of problem that this guy went into neurosurgery, had surgery, where they snipped this little disc, you know, by a arthroscopically kind of done thing. And he was, next day, he was ver- vertical and, and felt fine. It was, it was remarkable. And if mm-hmm. if I had a slip disc or something like this, I would sure like the option if they could fix it. So one of the things you need to do in these cases, and although I think all of the people who write about this stuff say, you know, give them time and it'll it'll get better, those kinds of things, but I think there are some other options now because this is really bad pain to have, and so I would be much more inclined to – see if they had a, a disc, um, on, uh, an, on an MR. And I know that that's kind of like people don't order MRs from the emergency department, but I think that uh, if you don't do that, you're going to send them to somebody who's going to make an appointment in, you know, four or five or six days, if you're lucky kind of thing. And they're going to do the MR guaranteed. Be- uh, so this kind of fast tracks, this and this person clearly has a neuropathic problem small number of these patients you know won't have a disc like there's this um, syndrome where the sciatic muscle goes through the um one of the gluteus muscles it,
1: piriformis, piriformis
2: syndrome yes exactly mm-hmm. and supposedly it's like six to eight percent i read yeah and and if if you have them walk like charlie chaplin you actually ex- you ex- externally rotate the That's right. uh, the feet, and uh, most people don't know who Charlie Chaplin is. No less how he <laughs> walks, uh, that that would should aggravate the pain. Or well, pressing in the center of the butt would would be a, a tip off there. But I think that I think that I would I would want to be referred if it was me. I don't want to I don't want to agonize at home waiting waiting for this to go away. If there's another option.
1: So, but Rick, are we doing so? Imaging what is your answer to that
2: well I if it was me I would image I, I know what people say about you know letting people you know uh, get it do it if it's worse than kind of thing um, I personally would would want to be imaged I know what the I know what it says but but I think uh, the radio the uh, neurosurgeons may have some processes now that could really fast track this and fix the problem.
1: You know, I would say, though, for these patients, they, they do get worked up and they do get imaged. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm imaging them. And sometimes I admit them to observation for the MRI. But, you know, they get labs, too. This lady's 55. She says she doesn't really have any medical problems. But then, you know, you look at her blood work and you're like, whoa, why is her creatinine like a little bumped? And, you know, maybe she's got some other issue going. You always find something else with these patients. So an stay for 55-year-old was sort of this uh-uh, ugh, yucky back pain that... Isn't walking well? I think. Well, that's you know, I don't know if I, I don't really
2: know if I would. I mean, I think probably many people do. But but if you were looking, trying to be a purist on this, there's no indications for doing any lab in her. You know, you know, lung, breast, and prostate cancer. You. Know. And the other thing about it is, if somebody has some kind of back pain and it is due to cancer. Uh, somebody will make the diagnosis in the next, you know, the next visit or the next visit. And, and it's like, is it going to change the outcome? Mm. No, I don't think so. so it, well, you, it, I don't
1: know. You know what, Rick? I I just heard on the radio this morning that everybody being brought here, are they're putting off their cancer screening test. Now, obviously, this isn't cancer screening, but cancer is being caught later and later and later because of COVID. And we all know that statistically, if cancer is caught earlier, you have a better chance of living. Now, you know. I don't, well, by the is time that the, you have is that metastatic the drug back companies saying that metastatic
2: back pain is not the is not the same yeah. as catching it early kind of thing.
1: Yeah, but I still think that I I'm not saying I always have to be the person to catch it, but I don't want to be the person to miss it. So, I guess you have to well, figure it, out.
2: Well, you may be radiating and testing a lot of people then, because this this person's uh, for all intensive pers- purposes seems to be just a normal old. 55 year old working in the gas station.
0: Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> you know, you it's a it. good conversation to have. I mean, yeah. you could go, go down the, the things of, Hey, do you have a fever? Do you have any unexplained weight loss? Do you have a family history? So those are all, I think, good questions to ask. And then you throw it to the patient because like, you know, you guys are very aggressive with MRI and these patients and, and I can see the utility in that. I'm just so concerned about the cost for these patients. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like an MRI in the ED and then, especially an inpatient like or whatever else here, the cost of that compared to like, there are ways to get MRI relatively cheaply as an outpatient. And so for me, if we're going to change the outcome and the relief of this patient by maybe a day or two, but we are tacking on a bill of how many thousands of dollars for the patient, I think you have to kind of put it in the patient's ball, uh, you know, court, and say, these are the risks and benefits. Costs can't be ignored. What do you think? What do you wanna do here? And and Mm -hmm. certain patients are gonna want the MRI early, and some will say, hey, I'm already kinda tight on my pocketbook, I think maybe I'll wait. And I'll give them these websites and these places they can go for some, you know, different resources to get inexpensive uh, MRI. Well, last case, Rick, this is now an 81-year-old male. He's brought in by his daughter and placed in the fast track because, hey, it's back pain. And where does fast track, uh, you know, where's back pain go? It's the fast track. It's a pretty healthy guy. Amazingly, no regular medications for 81 years old. Sees his primary care practitioner to get a checkup once every other year or so. And he's always told him he's had a clean bill of health. The patient's daughter is worried because... Dad's got some back pain over the past month now, and there's been no history of trauma. He's never had a history of an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and your abdominal exam today, which you would do on an old person with back pain, is benign. He's a tough old guy, but you know she really has her heart out on her sleeve because she just sees how bad he's hurting. Uh, He's gone to his PCP for this. They've tried some oral medications. He even went to orthospine. They did some injections, but nothing's working. And in fact, his pain continues to get worse over the past month. They actually live together. And sometimes she'll wake up and he's putzing around in the kitchen or watching TV real late at night. And he tells her that his back pain was just really bothering him and he couldn't get back to sleep. What are your thoughts on this patient, Rick?
2: He needs a plain film uh, of his lumbar sacral spine, if that's where the pain is, I'm assuming that's where it is. Uh-huh. When we talk about p- people's back uh, pain, um, the lumbosacral sacral spine is very flexible, you know, m- more so in some people than others. And the neck is also very flexible. What is not flexible is the thoracic spine. So pain in the thoracic spine area is kind of like, uh, th- that in itself is, can be a red flag because it doesn't really move. It doesn't flex. Uh, but we're going to assume that this is lumbosacral uh, pain in an 81 year old. This is an automatic trip to the e- uh, X-ray department. Do not pass go, kind of thing. Uh, and we're going to see we're going to see all kinds of uh, nasty things. You're going to be lipping and spurring and all of these other abnormalities <laughs> that would occur if you took it. And and there's sometimes no relationship between what the, what the X-ray looks like and what the people uh, feel like. But I think in this case you need to start off with a plain, uh, plain X-ray and see what's cooking on that. And apparently, you you saw some abnormalities on the plain film. Yeah, or, or am I? Yep, yep
1: they they were they were not good.
0: Yeah, this is a patient that I had, and it was just a really I, I hate giving bad news in a way. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy that it's a me that has the privilege of having that relationship with the patient, but. Yeah, this, this was a patient who had clearly this moth-eaten appearance to the spine, to the pelvis, and so I had to kind of break it to, to daughter and dad that this looked like cancer. And, and yeah, this is a totally different patient than our 55, than our 25-year-old, who had some history of lifting, who have kind of this neurological symptoms here, I I agree. I'm more concerned about metastasis and cancer in this 81-year-old. The nighttime pain was a thing for me. That didn't come out in my history with the patient until after I told them the results of the x-ray. And then that's when the daughter revealed, yeah, it's worse at night. And all these, it's like the textbook opened up. You know, she really started laying out all the really classic findings for metastatic pain. So that was a really sad day for, for them,
2: clearly. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's also Paget's disease of bone, which may look a little ratty. And so, uh, we, we, people use the phrase, there's a spot on your lungs, <laughs> spot on your lungs, you know, when that, when you know darn well what that spot is, but it could be a uh, coccidio for all I know kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm usually not, um, very d- direct unless I'm really, really Sure. Uh, kind of thing. So yeah. I say uh, we we see some abnormalities here. Uh, I think that they may be accounting for your pain, but we are going to need to get it checked out further.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, I, uh, uh, and they'll say, doctor, is it cancer? I said, to tell you the truth, I really can't say. You yeah. got to give them a little hope for a while, at least.
1: Well... You know, back pain can be a lot of things, and we've only sort of literally just scratched the surface. Um, that is
2: the truth. You know, I was I mean, reviewing uh, so that I, I wouldn't, you wouldn't trap me on this stuff and kind of thing. <laughs> and I actually, and it's like well, you could spend a, yeah, if when you look at the medical literature, there are thousands. I wouldn't doubt if there are tens of thousands of articles on back pain. Yeah. It is just extraordinary. Whenever there's tens of thousands of articles and something, it means you don't, we don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it's just because it can be so many different things. And people, you know, we always talk about, Rick, that the body just doesn't understand pain well, right? Like people feel pain. you know, It's hard to kind of express where it is. You know, you said with a teapot. T spine pain. It's like, well, you know, is it really my T spine? Is it my chest? Like, where is the pain? You know, abdominal pain can sometimes go to the back. You know, you got infection. Is it also? Also, we didn't even cover a single infection here, which could be. Well, you know, actually, you know,
2: we didn't go down the tuna fish. Uh, you know, the um, what are believed to be the red flags. Yeah, Although I right. must admit, there was there's a paper that looked at every red flag out there. Was there were found 53 red flags, <laughs> and then they actually yeah. try to m- match it up with whether in fact they had uh, a, um, a bad outcome in some of these. And it was like, uh, it was, it was, it was rare that that occurred. I know that that sounds like a strange paper and I would still say use the uh, tuna fish
1: uh, yeah uh, al- uh, algorithm. You know, Billy Mallon used to give that talk and, um, just a little update on Billy. we got some really great photos of him at physical therapy and anybody that's been following his story. Um, he's doing much better. So, very happy to share that on the podcast. It was a good nice message we got last week from Jan.
2: So um can I do the tuna fish thing just so Yeah, go yeah. go ahead, go yeah. for it. So, so T is for trauma. You know, fell off a ladder. You get you're entitled to an x-ray. Uh unexplained weight loss. It's a it, people talk about, you know, 15, 20 pounds kind of thing. Neurologic symptoms, absolutely. Age over 50, uh, you know, uh, by the time you're Fifty, you have one foot in the grave already. So they basically say, okay, you're entitled to an x-ray. Some people think that that's, that is way too low and that it's more like 65 where you're pretty much automatically entitled to an x-ray of your back. Fever for sure. And in the old days where there was a paper chart, you could physically circle the temperatures that which told the world that I looked at this and I know what, you know, I'm looking for 100.4. Uh IV drug use, sure, steroid use, history of cancer, okay, lung, breast, prostate, uh, renal are the big four that go to bone. And um, I I think that uh, there's – the I think the other thing that sh- should be on here is an an infection anywhere in your body that you've had. Uh, it's a bladder infection. You should know it. If you've been on antibiotics or anything in the last month – I want to know about it, whether it's a tooth or what, because everybody's, there's more and more people that have stuff in their back, like metal. And, uh, and the more of that you have, the, the bugs like to go to the back, you know, I don't know what, 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 what the story there between the discs. And, and so I would, I would want to know that too.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we could go on and on and on and on, but, uh, I think, I'm, I think I'm done. I think I think we're done. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that was really awesome, Rick. You know, I, I very much always enjoy when you can talk cases with us. And we really thank you for being on the show and sharing your great clinical pearls on back pain. You know, we've got a lot of other lectures that you do and people uh, at CCME do for faculty here, our talks. And, of course, the course that's coming up in July um, and if you want to hear more of Rick on a monthly basis, you can listen to the Risk Management Monthly podcast, where he and Dr. Greg Henry discuss medical legal cases and queries, and they also have some great special guests. and And it's just lovely to hear them chat. So you can check out our website at ccme.org for more about Risk Management Monthly. Um, but
2: just uh, Rick- I, I want to thank you guys. I want to thank you guys for starting this podcast that basically has crossed the lines between PAs and NPs and shown the commonality. Yeah, I think they're, they're overlapping circles. They talk to those Venn diagrams. Yeah, there are overlapping circles, but the overlap is, is really big, particularly in the emergency department uh, environment. So I want to thank you for coming up with it. I think that you're both terrific at it, and I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the word gets out on what you're doing
1: well thank you thanks for saying that um and just so you know you're also giving away some free products this month rick so what are we doing (laughs) we're doing well we're giving 20 percent off this month so
2: t-shirts
1: t-shirts so Uh,
2: swag
1: (laughs) swag so last month we asked a trivia question (laughs) we asked a trivia question like we do every month and uh, it was about sickle cell disease because we did a segment on sickle cell which was great by the way we got some really good feedback about that but who the two (laughs) questions The That's two question, the two, the question was who were the two people who discovered why the red blood cells become a sickled shape, and the answer was E Vernon Hahn and Elizabeth Gillespie. And the winner this month is we're going to give it to Desi Spellings. She's a FNP in, from Memphis, Tennessee. So Desi, congratulations! We're going to get you a twenty percent off coupon. So we'll we'll message you about that. Good job.
0: Well, we have upcoming live scheduled boot camps in las vegas this year a lot of folks are looking for live courses again they're tired of the zoom teaching and so am i frankly i want to be in person i'm going to be in person in july so is rick so is martha the whole gang's going to be there if you get this next question right you will win 20 percent off any CCME course you want. It can be, uh, you know, a streaming one if you don't are not ready to enter polite society again. But if you want to come see us live, then yes, any CCME live course you want and you can use it for yourself. You can give it to a friend. It's your 20% off. Okay, here is the question. All right, so
1: this month we're asking you this. Who was the president of the United States that signed the Needlestick Safety and Prevention Act into law and who was the Massachusetts nurse whose advocacy for sharps injury safety helped the act pass, who later became president of the American Nurses Association. Whew, that's a doozy, man. We'll see who gets that. You
0: well, it's can a big e- prize, you know, yeah. so we want to make sure that we work for right. it.
1: Email us your guesses at 2viewcast at gmail.com. That's the number, 2viewcast at gmail.com. And we will give you that great prize. For more information, you can go to our website, as we said, at www.ccme.org. The EM Boot Camp this summer, you can learn all about that. It's happening in July. And be sure to check out the other courses that we offer.
0: Yeah, this is right around the corner. I mean, if you work in the ER or your urgent care, you're scheduling out into July right now when you're hearing this podcast. So please give it some serious thought. We'd love to see you there. Thank you for listening to the episode of the Two View today. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency. and It'll come right up. Ratings will help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some Two View goodness. Now, if you like YouTube and you want to see Martha, Rick, maybe even me, on the video blog and said search for Center for Medical Education and you'll catch the video version of our podcast. Don't forget that website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we're referred to today, whether it's hepatitis stuff, other HIV, PEP stuff, or we'll have more about back pain, that great stuff from Sergey Motov about pain relief in different conditions here. That website is 2view, the number 2view.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Fett. Show notes are by Meg Dippel.
1: Thanks again for tuning in, friends and EM. And thanks again to Rick for his help today. Share your podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us at the 2view. Have a good day and a great shift.